This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Office of the Federal CIO, part of the Office of Management and Budget, is going on a hiring spree. Claire Montemarana, the federal CIO, is filling open positions with an expectation for a busy 2022. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller has more about why the turnover in the federal CIO's office may not necessarily be a bad thing. And Jason, I guess turnover is not a bad thing if the correct people leave. So tell us about the turnover they've had so far in the CIO's office. I'm not sure I'd argue the correct people are leaving or the incorrect people are leaving. I would just argue that the in, in, within the federal CIO shop, and this is within OMB, there has been a lot of turnover over the last year. I was told that there was more than 40 staff members in late 2020. That number dropped by uh, to under 35 by summer of 2021. Now, you may say, oh, it's only five people, but when your staff is fairly small, by percentage, that's a lot of people. And then if you start looking at some of the names who left, the most recent one, Tom, is Deputy Federal CIO Maria Rhoda. Now she's retiring at the end of March. If you go before her, Jordan Burris, the uh, Office of the CIO Chief of Staff, has been there, was there for four years. He left for the private sector. I've learned that a couple other folks are leaving. Steve McAndrews, who's the Director of Federal Cybersecurity, is heading over to the National Nuclear Security Administration in, in, within the Energy Department to become the Deputy CIO for another former OMB guy who left early in the year in July, uh, James Wolf, who became the CIO at NSA. And then there's also uh, Doc McConnell, who was a former senior advisor for cybersecurity. He joined CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, in October. So as you can see, Tom, there is this churn that's happening. And on top of that, you have people, positions that just weren't filled or detailees that are only coming in for a year or two and then leaving. So there has been a lot of changes happening, not necessarily unusual, but still it affects that long term, that ability to really get things going. And, and it also forces people to go, oh, what's going on there? And I want to be clear. There's nothing going on there that I can tell. I'm sure like every office, Tom, it's not perfect. There are challenges, but this is normal. I mean, if you look back over the years and, and I've been covering OMB for 20 plus years, there's always this type of churn. And how is the federal CIO, Ms. Marta Marana, how is she replacing the people with whom? She's doing two things, which I have to you have to give her a lot of credit for. She's bringing in some experienced federal executives, and, and two of them that we wrote about in the last couple of weeks is Eileen Verdreen, who's the former uh, chief data officer at the Air Force. She's coming over, and this is actually her second tour over at OMB. She was a uh, presidential fellow leadership development program in the White House uh, uh, earlier in her career. And, they, and she also brought in Drew Michaelgard, who for the past eight years has been the executive director of product engineering at the Veterans Affairs Department, and he's actually taken over with a new title, an Associate Deputy Federal CIO. What's that exactly? We'll figure that out in time. But but the point is, there's two people who understand how agencies work and are going to bring a really important perspective to OMB. The second thing that Claire Monterano is doing is bringing in some folks from that have important legislative experience. And, and two of those are, one of those is Christine Lamb. She's coming over from GSA on detail. And the other one is uh, Cassie Winters, who's actually joining the Federal CIO office in, in, at the end of the month. Uh, January from the House Oversight and Reform Committee, where she focused on technology policy. And then the third person that's come in is a, a gentleman by the name of Andy Lewandowski, who's a, focused on improving customer experience. He came over from the U.S. Digital Service in July. So as you can see, Tom, these aren't just bringing in newbies who have never experienced government. You have people with specific skill sets that are really adding value to what OMB does, what the federal CIO office is going to oversee. So therefore, the turnover might be a good thing. 
I think it. I think it is, and I think it is because you are bringing in this diverse set of talent. And, you know, I talked to one former OMB official who uh, had requested anonymity, and they said, "Listen, this job is really difficult. This is a you're put out fires. It's six and a half days a week. It's it's ten, twelve hours a day. It's definitely not for the faint of heart." I've also talked to a lot of former OMB folks over the years, and they've told me this is the best job I've ever had. It was the hardest job I've ever had, but it was the best job I ever had because of your impact that you can have across the government and really make change. And, and as I call it, Tom, pushing that boulder up the hill, another rotation. If you could push that up the hill in a couple of rotations in, in the course of a year, you've made real progress. OMB is put on USA Jobs some openings that they're trying to fill. And, and I think that's really important that they're not just sure. bringing in folks on detail. They're actually hiring permanent staff as well. Yeah, they're bringing on people, as you point out, from across the government that it's hard for the rest of the CIOs to hide from for people that have been in the same job at another agency. Because and so, they have those relationships. And I think that's key for OMB, have those relationships. Maria wrote the deputy federal CIO was so successful because she was a CIO and had the relationships with other CIOs. So there are several examples executive orders that impinge on the federal CIO, including the customer experience one. So what are Martirana's big priorities in 2022 and what's the marching orders for the people she's bringing in? Of course, you've got to start with cybersecurity, Tom. We know about the executive order. Oh, yeah, May. that too. <laughs> we, yeah, that, that little thing. We, we know that the uh, zero trust strategy just came out last week, the final one. So I think all of that's going to be a, a big kind of shining like beacon for, for the federal CIO, for CISA, for, for, for all parts of the government to really move toward. But if you look at some of the folks she's bringing in, like, like as an example, Cassie Winters from the Oversight and, and, and Reform Committee, she's really going to focus on customer experience. Andy Lewandowski, focus on customer experience. We're seeing that the executive order from December also is going to get a lot of attention from Martirana's office. You hear it from GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan, as you've got to make the websites work. That's what's important. The other thing I think you, you can't underestimate is the power of data, making that, that data piece understandable, make it standardized, make it usable, drive decisions. That's why Eileen Verdrine comes in. Other, Drew Michaelgard has uh, you know experience in product engineering that can that relates back to the data. The cybersecurity work all relates back to the data. So there's that connection there. So you not only have the federal data strategy that that the office will work on, but you have host of other pieces and parts that, of course, lean on, rely on data to be successful. Tom, there's a lot to watch, and it's going to be interesting to see who else gets pulled in, what other hires they make. Again, I want to be clear about this. Nobody should look at this as going, uh-oh, what is going on in the federal CIO office? Yes, these folks that are leaving are really smart, and it's really sad that they are leaving. At the same time, the new folks that are coming in are really adding, again, diverse talent. It's a, almost like a rejuvenation of, of, of the existing team members because you're bringing in this new new people with new ideas and new thoughts. And there is also the issue that the OMB and the CIO's office has some say over the distribution of the TMF, the Technology Modernization Funds. So that's something I imagine she's going to keep focusing on. Absolutely. The board has a lot of money to, to put out there. I think they've only done about $300 million. They got over a billion. So there's a lot more coming. And I and I've talked to a couple CIOs, Tom, who are a little frustrated with the pace. They would like the TMF to be kind of awarded more quickly. Now, you don't know if that's the board's fault or the types of proposals they're getting just aren't quite good enough that they have to go back to the agencies time and again. Almost every CIO I hear from says, oh, we put in a proposal or two proposals or 10 proposals. So I think there's a lot of excitement around it. I think people just a little more urgency to get the money out the door. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.